Good evening, everybody, and welcome here to the first in our series of partnership with the Keystone Positive Change Investment Trust. And we've decided to try to do something really great with the problems that are around us. In other words, try to get some solutions onto the table, which is why we've called this series The Six Ideas to Change the World. So we're going to be looking in the next few weeks, one a month, to big topics. Tonight we're starting with food and next month we're going to be looking at a question of water and we have two tremendous speakers lined up for you then. Tim Smedley who's got a new book out on the global water crisis and he'll be joined by Alok Jha who wrote Water and is a leading water scientist. But now to tonight. Henry Dimbleby and Tim Spector are the two people that I personally as someone who works in food politics want to listen to about what's happening with food. Henry is the author and of the current book out called Ravenous, which is doing brilliantly well. But before Ravenous, there was the food strategy commissioned by the government. And I'm sure you're going to hear lots about it from Henry, sort of parked rather than uh, acted on. Anyway, Ravenous has come out of the food strategy and it's a fantastic read if you really want to get to grips with what is going on in food in our country right now. He's going to be joined with Tim Spector, who is the man who probably knows more about what's inside your body than practically everybody else. He is the expert on the gut. He is the author of Food for Life, which is his current book that's just out. And that is subtitled The New Science of Eating Well. And it is about science and chemistry. Tim is also the wizard behind the Zoe project, which kicked off at the beginning of COVID. So, Tim, I'm going to introduce you both to them and hand over to Tim now. And Tim's going to talk to Henry and then it will be over to you for some questions and I'll pop back up at the end. So, Tim, welcome. Thank you. And over to you. Thanks a lot, Rosie. And uh, hello and good evening, everybody. And thanks for listening. And this is an unusual role for me as an interviewer. But uh, so you have to bear with me. But um, basically that what we're going to be doing is I'm going to give uh, Henry a chance to give a, a summary, really, of, uh, I guess, his, his book and his ideas about going forward. Then we're going to have a bit of back and forth on some of these topics to tease apart some of the things we might agree on or some of the things we might disagree on. And then we're going to have uh, an open up for a Q&A uh, at the end, and I'll be taking questions from uh, the chat and the, uh, the Q&A box, I should say, rather than the chat. Um, uh, and and that, that's it, really. And um, uh, so I hope you enjoy it. So, Henry, um, we uh, actually met uh, a few years ago when you were, um, uh, I think it was coming to some event on Leon. You weren't working with, with Leon anymore. This is a, um, uh, a healthy fast food chain that um, Henry um, co-founded uh, a while ago now uh, and has since left, but uh, gave you a lot of insight into the industry, I think, and uh, the food system, which many people don't have, you know, about the consumers. And uh, then we bumped into each other again, I think when you asked me to help on the national food strategy as a, uh, an expert advisor, and we had several interactions along that, that, that path. And I do remember um, how optimistic you were uh, as we were handing in the uh, national food strategy. And how actually I was uh, actually very pessimistic 
uh, at the same time. And I think we, we were a bit out of sync on that. Uh, you thought, well, with this wealth of information and massive statistics and all these experts uh, agreeing, um, it's going to be a slam dunk, really, to, to shift this. And, uh, you know, the important thing is not to upset them, make it easy for them to just accept all these changes and uh, it, it's all going to happen. And I do remember that quite clearly. And I had been very badly scarred by my uh, interactions with the government on COVID and uh, how, despite facts and uh, statistics and how you could save lives, the government bureaucracy and the you know, inertia uh, always tended to predominate against uh, doing something a little bit risky, but ultimately in, in everyone's uh, benefit. So it was interesting. And I think we can come on to how, where the current position is uh, in terms of your optimism now. But I wonder, um, uh, so the National Food Strategy was where it all started. That's where you got all this information from. It took a couple of years, I guess. And then um, you summarized it in this marvelous book, which is much more for public consumption because the food strategy, I must say, it's a little bit dry, lots of tables and things. And you are a bit too polite, in my, my view, in that. Um, <laughs> and, you're, and you're a bit... Always polite. Uh, well, you're not quite as polite in, in uh, Ravenous, shall we say. Or maybe that's Jemima's um, uh, uh, interpretation. Um, and so wonder, um, could you sort of summarise, really, the, the take-home messages, perhaps from the National Food Strategy and, uh, and the book Ravenous, about you know, what, what really the, the important messages you think there are that, that came out of it that you know, we, we should be discussing, really, as a nation? Yeah, so um, you mentioned Jemima, that's my wife, Jemima Lewis, and she had uh, she'd, she'd worked unpaid, she's a journalist and writer, and had worked unpaid editing, first of all, a, a piece of work I did for government back in 2013, the school food plan, and then the, the food strategy. And we had always intended to do two things with the food strategy. One was to change the ideas that people have about how the food system works, because if you don't People don't understand how things work. You're never going to be able to get policy in place. And the second thing was uh, some policies that we hoped, I hoped the government would take some off to put in place. And um, actually, by the time we published, the government had already adopted quite a few of the policies under pressure from Marcus Rathford. They adopted some policies on, on, on food poverty. They subsequently adopted some policies on... Um, uh, on the environmental side, but they had gone, they'd gone backwards on health. Boris Johnson had uh, been very worried about his COVID episode. He decided to intervene on health, and then they'd postponed everything to 2025. And pretty much as, uh, well, pretty much on the day or the next day, I turned to, to my wife and said, look, we're going to have to turn this into a book because no one is going to download, uh, uh, no one sane is going to download a, a government document, and apologies if there's anyone on this call who, who has. Uh, and, and, and quite predominantly, we need to get these ideas across. And so the story that we tell starts uh, just after the war in 1945, and it's the story of how we got to the, the system we have today and then what we need to do to change it. So um, in 1945, uh, there were 2.5 billion people on the planet, despite um, 
all of the bloodshed of the previous years. That was more than there had ever been before. And scientists were uh, looking forward and predicting that the population would grow to by to 8 to 10 billion in the next 50 years due to improvements in medication and sanitation. And up to that point in human history, when the population of the planet had expanded, we had simply dug up more land to feed them. And that was right, right back to the Holocene, the period of stable climate in 10,000 BC, where agriculture became possible because you could predict climate. That is how we proceeded. And in, in, at the end of the war, people were looking at the equation and they were saying, well, there's, there's no more land to dig up. So if you go back to the newspapers of the late 40s, early 50s, you see it's, they're full of Malthusian predictions of, of basically this was the time when the human race had run out of resource and our population would be restricted by starvation. Uh, and what those, um, those scientists hadn't reckoned on was a, a, a young botanist from Idaho who uh, called Norman Borlaug, who'd grown up in the Great Depression. He had seen starvation face, you know, close, close up. He'd seen food riots, and he had set upon a lifelong, a lifelong, I'm too close to my microphone, it's distorting, I'm going to pull back. Um, he, uh, they said, uh, he set on a lifelong mission to, um, to, to feed people, and he found himself at the end of the war in Mexico, and he uh, was sent there by the Rockefeller Foundation to see if he could improve the agricultural techniques in Mexico, and when he arrived, they imported half their wheat. He wrote to his wife, that the, the, the quality of the soil and the condition of the people had clubbed his mind. They were so poor, they were barely scraping by. And he said, we, we have to do something. I don't know, I don't know what we're going to do, but we have to do something. And what he did was he tried to create a new form of wheat. He got a, a, a short-stemmed Japanese wheat um, that was very, very unproductive, but had a short, thick stem. And he tried to breed it with a very heavy, uh, very um, high-yielding American wheat, which had a long stem, and therefore whenever the wind blew, it got knocked over and, and therefore was useless as a crop. Uh, and, and another wheat which was resistant to wheat rust. And he, he set up two research stations, one by the coast and one in the mountains, so that he could uh, breed, had two breeding seasons a year. and. He succeeded. I mean, he did this by hand. The Mexicans thought he was crazy. When he finally created this new wheat, he gave out seeds to Mexican farmers uh, who he knew were popular so that when they produced the wheat, the other farmers would want to get it from them because he thought they wouldn't want to get it from him. And that, that experiment was uh, recreated for maize and for rice globally. And we now produce from slightly less land, actually, than 1945, because after collectivization, after the Soviet Union split up, a lot of very marginally productive land went out of production. And we now produce almost two times the number of calories for 8 billion people off slightly less land uh, than we did for 2.5 billion people. It's one of, by any measure, it's one of the great uh, feats of human ingenuity. We say in the book that if, if, um, if Borlaug if there'd been a biopic of his life, he would have been played by Jimmy Stewart because he was kind of, he had a long square jaw and good, good American teeth. Um, but, he, but there wasn't a biopic of his life because 
uh, because you don't get famous for stopping disaster. No one notices. Hardly anyone who's not in agriculture knows who Norman Borlaug is. But as is quite often the case, when you solve one problem, you create others. And there were two problems that that, that the new system has had created. The first one was environmental. So as uh, the in, in industrial agriculture expanded, so it destroyed nature. Um, it's hard to overstate how how much uh, our agricultural systems have dominated nature. One way of looking at it, and I'm just going to share a, a slide here, is to look at the total weight of animals on the planet. So this is in 10,000 BC, the beginning of the Holocene, there were 2.5 uh, million people and a whole load of, uh, of wild animals. If you fast forward that to today, you see that uh, people have, the population's grown to 8 billion. Uh, wild animals have shrunk considerably, and that continues to today. So since 1970, for example, we have lost half the farmland birds in this country. And in fact, the animals we keep, the little green circles at the top, horses, dogs, and cats, weigh almost as much as all wild animals. And then the orange uh, circles are the 80 billion animals that we slaughter every year to feed ourselves, which at any time uh, weigh uh, twice as much as all the people on the planet and 20 times as much as all the wild animals. And as a result of this dominion, uh, farming is by far the biggest cause of biodiversity collapse. It's the biggest cause of water pollution, of water scarcity, of deforestation, of the reduction of aquatic life generally. And after climate change, it's the oh, sorry energy. It's the biggest cause uh, of climate change. Uh, and it wasn't. It's not only, uh, as you know very well, Tim. It's not only our planet that the that this system is is destroying it's our health so basically the industrial the green revolution as rather ironically this form of farming came to be known produces in great quantity uh the cheapest form of calories which are refined carbohydrates refined sugars and refined vegetable oils and that is turned into uh ultra processed food 57% of the food that we eat in this country is processed food and that food is now by far the biggest cause of, uh, of non-communicable disease in this country. And to give you a sense, again, of, that, of the scale of that, by 2035, uh, that is um, uh, the treating type 2 diabetes alone, just one form of non-communicable disease, is projected to cost the NHS what what treating all cancers does today. Chris Whitty, during lockdown, who presumably was quite busy, was making uh, online speeches in his spare time to anyone who would listen about the harm that diet was doing to the NHS. Uh, and, and Andy Haldane, the, uh, the former chief economist of the Bank of England, has said uh, that this is now the, the biggest drag on our economy. So what that looks like is, the NHS sucks up all the money, uh, the economy stagnates, and we end up impoverished and sickly as a country. And so the question then is, how do you fix that? And what we try to do here is really focus in on the feedback loops that were going wrong in the complex system. And on health, 
we coined a phrase which was uh, the junk food cycle. So I don't think this is true now, but certainly when I started doing this work, the overwhelming belief in politics and amongst the population was that the reason we were getting sick was because we were ill-educated, we were stupid and lazy, that basically if you could educate people and get them to exercise, uh, then then that would solve the health-related uh, problems. And basically the kind of... Um, uh, the unspoken uh, conclusion you can draw from that is that um, basically if we're sick, it's because we're, we're too lazy to get off our fat bottoms and, and exercise and too indisciplined to eat or well. Cook, or cook, maybe. Or cook or whatever. And, 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 and everything, we might get into this, everything about those two statements that we're not educated and that it's about exercise is provably wrong. And what's actually going on is that you've got the junk food cycle that the food industry is pouring more and more marketing dollars into research and development of food that makes us sick. Uh, we eat more of that. They pour more money in. We eat more of that. And we love that food. We'd, we'd, our, our evolved appetite makes us, gives us huge dopamine responses to that food. If it's low and insoluble fiber, it fills up less quickly. They spend more. We eat more. We get sick. And you, you're going to break that junk food cycle in one of two ways. I'm sure we'll talk about in the discussion. You either attack the commercial incentives of the companies or the other part of the feedback loop is our appetite. And I worry that we'll end up with a third of the population on appetite-suppressing drugs. I think that is probably more than 50% likelihood that that will, that will happen. Um, and then on the uh, – it's actually, I think, more optimistic on the, on the, on the natural side. Uh, Partha Dasgupta uh, pointed out in his Economics of Biodiversity – that not that, that nature is invisible in every um, every mechanism we use to to measure human success. You can't count it in your wallet. It's not in the balance sheet of companies. It's not in the way you measure GDP. And in fact, he says it's worse than that. We actually give it a negative cost. We pay people to destroy nature to the tune of about five hundred billion dollars a year globally in subsidies to industrial agriculture, fisheries, and, and fossil fuels. And so if you can unpick that, if you can change that, which is actually easier than the health thing, you can, um, you can, you, you, there, there is a way out. So we then go through the various ways in which government can make changes. And basically government needs to change these feedback loops. So it needs to make nature visible and it needs to att attack the commercial incentives of companies. But, but change Government intervention, government laws are necessary to, to change the system, but they're not sufficient. So I have a charity, for example, from when I did school food, the school food work that goes into schools and uh, helps them improve their cooking and their food education. And every school you go to which, which has got good food education and good food, it's not because the government passed a law saying they should do it. It's because someone decided that actually enough was enough and they need to do better. So the one thing I would urge anyone, you know, if, if they feel inspired by the end of this discussion, we start the book by saying uh, you are much, much less free than you think when you put a forkful of food to your mouth. You actually are living in a system of feedback loops that go from through nature, the crops that are produced, the commercial incentives of companies, and actually you're much less free than you think. 
But because you're a cog in that machine, you can move the machine. So if you do feel inspired to make the change, just look around you at your community. And there are all sorts of things that you can improve. So, for example, you could uh, go ask to go and eat the food in your grandchild or child's school. Um, not only is that tremendous fun, if you're a pro, if you're primary school, it's really good fun. You're like a kind of a king visiting. Everyone loves it. Secondary school, they really don't want to see you. But primary school, it's a lot of fun. But that has so often been the trigger that changed the food in the school. A parent saying, actually, we can do better. It may be working in the local food bank. It may be teaching your children or godchildren or grandchildren to cook. It may be even just eating a little less meat in your house. But we need, as well as the government, we need an up, we need a change of culture from the bottom up. And that is something that all of us are capable of doing. Great. Okay. Well, I mean, it's obviously impossible to summarize, you know, everything in these uh, in the report and in your in your book and stuff, but that's that's only given us um some areas to, to start tackling. So I'm I'm interested um firstly, uh perhaps we could talk about uh meat because this seems to be, you know, we've been talking about we can talk about we're going to park ultra processed food for a bit, which in a way is slightly less contentious. Um, I think most people would say, yes, junk food, uh, let's eat less of it, you know, makes, makes some sense, but maybe harder to sort out. Whereas meat, which environmentally is extremely clear uh, in terms of beef and lamb, uh, getting people to change those habits uh, it is probably harder, yet. The, the gains for climate change are much more direct and clear, I, I, I would argue. And I just wonder, um, do you, you know, I've noticed this, you know, you talk about it and there seem to be some people that, yeah, uh, I care about the climate, I'm happy to reduce my meat. Others say, I'll do anything else, but I'm not, you know, this is what, this is traditional, you know, you can't, uh, don't tell me what to eat. Um, and it's all very healthy. Um, I just wonder whether this is very much a cultural thing. How you change? How do you change that attitude uh, to get people to eat less meat? And I'm asked all the time, Tim. You know, what do you think? What's your view on meat, health-wise, uh, regardless of the environment? And you know, to reiterate, for people who don't know, it is roughly fifty times less efficient to eat protein by eating meat than it is from. Uh, other other sort of sources like beans and pea and soy um and that cost is borne by the climate and and, and in the environment but getting people to you know i say you know, they say well is a small amount of, of good quality meat actually harmful for you um and i say well the evidence is probably no uh there isn't clear data that it's harmful other than it takes up space on your plate which means you can't have the good stuff it's sort of neutral in that aspect uh, but it means you're not having the plants that help your your gut and but i do always say most of the meat we eat is not high quality it's high it's highly processed it's part of frozen foods and ultra processed foods and there's absolutely no reason any of us should be eating that stuff which we probably couldn't tell if it was substituted for plants anyway um, because it's it's been so up been so treated so you know that to me, would be an easy sell, and um, but I, I, I find it difficult to convince people um, 
to go down that route. And I get a lot of resistance when I talk it, you know, there's a chapter in my book about the future of food and, you know, these other sources of protein. And, you know, people say, well, it's just more ultra processed rubbish. You're, you're just doing the same thing problem. And I, I wondered um, what your views were on, on those two arguments, you know, the why we can't seem to shift uh, national mindset and why no politician dares go there right and that's yeah. pretty obvious um and then why can't we just substitute all that rubbish ultra processed food at schools and hospitals for plant-based products yeah so i think that uh that there is a cultural problem so we did a lot of uh we did a lot of focus groups uh both qualitative and quantitative research on all of our recommendations and it is definitely the case that unlike, so uh, politicians tend massively to overestimate uh, resistance to health me measures. Actually, the public are way ahead of them in wanting interventions on advertising, um, you know, on, on bog offs, all those kind of things. Um, and they, they, want, they want the government to, to get to work. On meat, there is a there is a significant minority of people for whom clearly meat eating uh, is part of their identity. So on kind of government actions on meat, from the mild, like you know, are setting targets for supermarkets to eat less to to, to sell less meat, to the quite intense, i.e., taxing meat. Fifty percent of people are roughly for those. But there's like a significant majority. And on the taxing, it's pretty much 50-50. And they would also get very heated, those debates, very quickly. Um, and so it is, it is a difficult space for politicians. I think you know, individually, the way that I have found that you can convince people is you say, first of all, you, you have to, going back to that chart I showed earlier, you have to say, look, it's not only, it's not, primarily about the methane because people get very hung up on methane it's primarily about this scarce resource we have that is land so for for, for you know until the 19th century we basically produced almost all product for human consumption from the action of sun on the land whether that's housing materials clothes food transportation then we worked out how to use millions of years of, of of stored sunlight in the form of fossil fuels to produce almost all of that stuff except for food. And we're now going into a, a world where actually we're not going to be able to use our fossil fuels, so we're going to have to use the land again. And so we need to use the land to produce food, but for energy, to restore biodiversity, to sequester carbon. And we just need... you. We need some of the land back from animals. 85% of the land that we use to feed ourselves in the UK, which is an area of land almost twice the size of the UK, is used to rear meat. And as you said, it's just an incredibly efficient way, inefficient way of, of rearing it. So I think that you... you say, uh, And then the second thing is you say, you know, if I would say, you know, why do you think we've landed on just about the right amount of meat? You know, is 80 billion right? Or, or could it be... A third less could it be fifty billion? And I think most reasonable people, when you put it in those terms, uh, kind of get it. But it is uh, at a national level, it's tricky. So what I'm now I'm now working on 
on on a couple of things. I think you're right. So for the there is a huge opportunity in ultra processed food. Fifty percent of the meat we eat is eaten in the form of mince, as you were saying. Foods where you probably wouldn't notice if half of it was replaced with lentils or something else. And I think as soon as that food becomes cheaper, that will just happen. I think that's kind of baked in, in a way. But then the other thing that I work, I do think we need a cultural shift. So, um, and I don't think it's possible for government to do it. So I'm working with the advertising agency, MNC Saatchi, to try and change the way, to come up with a campaign, basically, that changes the way that we think about eating less meat so that it appeals to someone who loves barbecuing. I'm quite intrigued by what Elon Musk has done with electric cars. Electric cars could have been the, the car for losers. They could have been the car for vegetarian sandal wearers from Totnes. I'm from near Totnes, by the way, so uh, uh, if you, anyone else here is, not, that's not intended as an insult. And you wear but sandals, do you? Uh... I, when I'm in Totnes, definitely. Um, uh, but, but it could have become that, but it hasn't become that. And I think there must, there has to be a way of just trying to take the heat out of that argument. I mean, but then again, you know, we, we were speaking to Rosie before this started and she was saying that uh, at the Hay Festival, she saw a, a discussion between the, the head of the farmers union and George Monbiot on meat that she found deeply depressing. And it was kind of as divided as ever, but I think we do need to try and find a way of making that less contentious. Yeah, well, I think picking away at that, ultra processed stuff that people can't recognize as meat is the obvious way and you know i mean a huge amounts of our food are uh served to institutions that we could control very easily and government could easily control and i wonder why uh, you know schools hospitals institutions and that's where you find the worst foods and you know we're we're putting up with our children with a, about a four pound budget aren't we for uh school uh their school meals uh, and some two pounds yeah, 30 or two pounds 30 on average oh was that right okay yeah. well, it's, it's it's that's pretty depressing it's you know, slightly more than they get in prison so you know it's yeah. uh, um that should be something that we could but as you said the most effective action is locally is getting parents to say okay just pay a few uh pounds more and give your kid a a decent amount and any extra will go towards uh, children who can't afford it. I mean, is that, you know, is it well, government action or is it local action? For Because for, I, a lot of, there is a growing consensus that we have to solve the school uh, education of kids, getting, getting to see what real food is to get them out of the junk food cycle. And we can't really do that unless we really revolutionise school dinners and school foods. That's, that's uh, and, and get rid of ultra processing from that and uh, serve them something decent they can recognize and change slightly their taste buds so they're not just being driven by all these uh, flavorings and additives and uh, stuff that's messing up with their guts. Yeah, I mean, I was, so uh, the industry magazine for school food, the, there's an industry body, had an advert uh, the other day for a, a, an ultra, a waffle that, yes. weighed 30, that weighed 38 grams for each of these waffles uh, I think about uh, eight grams was sugar and about seven grams was uh, sugar or processed carbs. Seven grams was fat, which left about whatever it was, 15 grams for the other 17 ingredients in the waffle. Um, and we need to change that. Now, that is so that is an area where 
I think that you, you need cultural change to the bottom up. You can do it. So £2.30, if you have enough people eating the meal, we do it at Shefton Schools, it is enough. I think you need to increase the availability of free school meals. So I think that, for example, Sadiq Khan's uh, uh, London initiative to, to give everyone free school meal in London will be transformative on the quality of the food as well as the number of people taking it up because you have fixed overhead. As soon as you're doing more, it becomes easier. And then someone is asking here about education. Uh, uh, we lost the, the, the nutrition education, the food nutrition education, and that stopped the pipeline of teachers coming through. So in order to make it work really well, you need to do a couple of things. You need to get the food good in the canteen. There needs to be an overlap between the nutritional education, the food cooking and the canteen so that they feel like part of the same thing. And we need to get more trained teachers by reintroducing the nutrition A-level. Now, there was, in the levelling up white paper, there were a bunch of recommendations on this, which where they took recommendations from the food strategy. Those had been kicked into the long grass. Uh, but I sense, and I think you sense, in the last three months, there has suddenly been a wake-up moment in both parties. So uh, Labour, Wes Streeting came to see the talk I did at Hay, uh, which is something you wouldn't have seen, I don't think, a talk on food a while back and you know i was actually fine i didn't know he was there and i was talking about how i was worried about the um the red wall and the culture war over what telling people not what to eat would uh would be a kind of would stop them taking action but i get the sense that they really want to take action and i also get the sense that that the particularly driven by treasury that Al, andy haldane's speech about this being a disaster for the economy is beginning to to hit home with the Tories. So I'm actually, you know, as you said, my optimism roller coaster is actually at the moment, I think if the precursor to any change is people understanding the nature of the problem, I think that that we're getting to a point where that, and I don't know what you think, be interested to get your views, where people are beginning to find it impossible to say nothing to see here. This is just about individual choice. But how do we, I mean, people listening to this, uh, you know, we're sort of preaching to the converted all the time. And a vast majority of the general public are still eating a diet high in ultra processed products. And all those products have labels on it that suggest they're healthy. They contain added vitamins, fortified, you know, uh, it's going to prevent osteoporosis, extra calcium for your bones. It's got uh, zinc because it's uh, going to help boost your immune system. They look like, oh, these are amazing products. And it's also low in fat. It's low in calories. It's going to, you know, help you uh, control your weight. And uh, people are, you know, giving this to their kids. And I, to me, I think this is the biggest um scandal that the public are not only you know not being told the truth but they are actually being sold lies in the terms of labels and marketing and advertising that you know the people who should be controlling our public health uh, are doing absolutely nothing about and 
propagating it. And, you know, we are, you know, one of the few Western governments that hasn't actually mentioned anything about ultra processed food in any guidelines because the governments have been so frightened of the food industry and lobbying. But, you know, why aren't there warnings on children's yogurt? Why aren't there warnings on orange juice that this stuff uh, is just the same as Coca-Cola and makes you fat? Why isn't there a warning that says, yeah, have ultra processed food at all my, you know, by all means, but it will make you overeat by 500 calories a day, uh, you know, and make you lose energy and feel exhausted all the time. You know, I'm all for giving people choice, but I think the time has come that we've got to uh, take the gloves off and stop uh, beating around the bush and saying, you know, we are serving people up stuff that is a, is complete hypocrisy that, you know, the well-educated uh, people are no longer eating and uh, it's, you know, it's poor, it's cheap, but it's, it's you know, people, even if they read the front, they, they're, they're given the wrong message. So there's not much um, in the discussion about really changing the labels apart from this superficial fiddling around with sugars and fats and things. So that's where I, I sort of disagreed with some of that, you know, the report, because I think I'm mean, talking to food companies They'll just get around those regulations very easily. We need a sticker saying this stuff is dangerous, just like cigarettes. By all means, have it, but know what you're doing. How do you how do you how do you deal with that? Yeah, so so fun enough, I, I was chaffing a couple of weeks ago to uh, the CEO of one of the big processed food companies came up to me and said, "What can I do?" And I said to him, "Well." On, uh, on environment, there's quite a lot you can do, actually. X, Y, and Z, here's how you could help. You need to help farmers with transition, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, I think there's very little you can do on health because you're just stuck. If you do anything yourself unilaterally, you will just be fired like the CEO of Danone was recently. And, uh, and then the next week, uh, Nestle launched uh, a breakfast cereal uh, a Kit Kat breakfast cereal, which is exactly what the world needs now. And funny enough, I've mentioned in the food strategy that you can already get Kit Kat in 28 different forms in the UK. This was the 29th. And on it, they had, um, uh, it said on the website, it said tasty and nutritious with a star. And the star of doing a lot of work there said contains vitamin B12. And at this, I, I kind of tweeted about this. This Oh, you know, fuck's sake, you know, you can't do much, but you could at least become, you could at least not be intentionally wicked. And then the, the, the former CEO of uh, another food business texted me as I saw that thing. He said, um, he said, just have a look at the, first of all, have a look at their, the mission, Nestle's mission statement. Nestle's mission statement is to be the world's leading supplier of, of nutritious food. And so clearly they had to have the nutritious on there or it wouldn't be on, on mission. And then he said, look at the portion size. Portion size is 30 grams. The portion size on uh, any other, um, all their other cereals is, is, is 40 grams. And when we did our research, when I was running a food business, the average portion that people ate of cereal was between 50 and 80 grams. If that had been the case, if they had a 40 grams, it all would have been red lights on the, on the, on the traffic lights. So there you have intentionally mendacious marketing 
of a product. They said it wasn't for children. It still sits in their family section on their website. And so I actually don't think that there's much point in talking to them anymore. I do think you need to have much stronger government intervention. There's no, they're, they're stuck. They're so not, you know. why, why isn't there a danger sign, a warning label, uh, ultra-processed food label? So, several countries do have them. And, uh, you know, someone was telling me that Colombia has just recently introduced an ultra-processed food tax. Uh, you know, they've gone ahead unilaterally and done this. So um, do they put it on bread? Moving forward. They put it on bread. So the big issue is, do you put it on with the current definition of ultra-processed food, uh, the, the, which is Carlos Monteiro, the Brazilian physicist, which is the Nova classification, there are all sorts of products where it, on that classification, it is clear that they are ultra-processed, but it's unclear if they're bad for you. Uh, so, for example, processed bread, my guess is that's going to fall into the bad for you category, surely wood bread. If I look at what happens when my children eat a, are offered white sliced bread, they eat about five times the quantity than if they... Uh, um, but stock cubes, which would also metaphor that catch my guess is they won't be bad. So that is what's literally what is stopping that happening in the UK is definitions. But I think we need to get we need to get over that, you know. Uh, and also they can be done for in this country, we have quite a strong thing of judicial review. So if they if they get that wrong in a way and a food company can show it's unfair. So but that is the fear. I mean, I'm just explaining that is the fear that's holding people back is being unfair, going for judicial review. But if you, you know, I also think with bread, even though I think bread is almost certainly chorley wood bread, the kind of most common bread that we eat that's very, very soft is going to turn out to be hyperpalatable, i.e. you eat a lot more of it. I think putting a big black sticker on one of our staples would be politically quite, quite difficult. I mean, interestingly, Kevin Hall, who you know, you know, who's the guy who is, Who's done the ad libitum experiments on ultra processor? He was the guy who your five your five hundred calories extra day came from when he stuck a group of people in loose fitting clothing in a lab, and for four weeks they ate ultra processed food, and for four weeks they ate fresh food cooked from scratch, and uh, they ate five hundred calories more a day and put on a kilo on the ultra processed food and lost a kilo on the food cooked from from scratch. He thinks if we could. Um, if we could, the, the problem with that experiment was getting people in a facility and experimenting on them. He thinks if we could, if we could somewhere in the world set up a facility which has all always got people in it on a rotational basis, eating food ad libitum, and this is key. You need to get the, the, the thing is what it does to your appetite. Again, it's the interreaction between appetite and the food that we could solve that question quite quickly, but that no one's doing it. He's incredibly frustrated. No one's doing it. And so we are no further forward, really, on understanding the mechanism in a provable way than we were five years ago, which is frustrating. I don't know. What do you think? Do you agree with that? Or do you, you might disagree with that. But No, I think, we're. you know, this is, um, this is, where, this is where we are. But, I, you know, I want to come back to some of these questions actually because we, we need to just uh start uh getting our our, our act together because we've got you know I, I just as a as a very brief summary so 
it sounds like there's multiple sources of where these pressure points can come in terms of the actions and um, uh, and labeling has got to come from government, right? You're not going to get unilateral uh, companies saying this is bad for you, uh, you know, uh, and we've re reduced the price accordingly. Um, uh, it, supermarkets could do it if the big four supermarkets decided to do that, but they're highly unlikely to because it would uh, hit sales without any great incentive. Um, we've got a very resistant government because they're saying, oh, well, there's 5% of foods we can't classify very precisely. Experts disagree, although they don't. You know, They'll just drag out someone who, who does it. Um, um, and then you've got taxes and subsidies and things as the other uh, way to weigh around that. And I think what you say is that's actually quite difficult to do um, in reality. Uh, but, but I just wonder, you know, if you had to sort of pick, uh, and then of course we've got education, which I think is the one where everybody agrees, right? Uh, yeah. Although, although it's it's way if you are the secretary of state in the Department for Education, it is not in your top ten list of things to do, and never has been, so it never gets done. And which which all means we sort of need in government. You pointed out there's about twenty groups in government that make decisions about uh diet and uh and health and there isn't a single diet czar or an obesity you know an obese czar um which is we we, we probably need so there is someone to go to and we probably need to disband most of these things like sat, sat like these guideline committees and things that are only answer to one of these branches of government and they can't tell what you know, agriculture should do, education should do. It needs to be joined up. So I think um, you've clearly exposed this massive, ridiculous bureaucracy that runs all across health, NHS, you know, DEFRA, et cetera, et cetera. So someone's got to clean this up. But um, you know, so there are a number of routes here. If you had to, you know, if you had a magic wand to do one thing, what would it be? Would it be taxation? Would it be subsidies? Would it be... So, uh, one thing. Uh, so, uh, a politician once said to me, uh, as, a, uh, as a government or as a politician, a secretary of state, I can do four things. I can uh, ban things. I can make things mandatory. I can tax them or I can subsidize them. They said also, I can also make a speech, but that doesn't tend to be very effective. Um, and I think it is actually, I, I am going to refuse the premise of your question, because if you do one thing in a complex system, the system will react to that. Um, and, and so, for example, the soft drinks industry levy, I have been lobbied by, which took out 45,000 tons of sugar from our diet. I've been lobbied by sugary drinks companies saying this should be expanded for to, to all categories of food. And the reason I'm almost 100% sure the reason that they've done that is because the share of sugar has moved, the system has reacted, and we're now getting our sugar from sweets and other things. So things for me that, that I will give you my immediate and then, you know, and the immediate things, you have to ban advertising. You absolutely have to ban advertising of all of this stuff to children and online completely. If I had to do one thing, that's what I would do. I think that will have a much 
look at all the data, I think have a much bigger effect than anything else. I think you then have to, we live in a swamp. And yes, you have to, you know, it's difficult for people to live healthily in a swamp. But that swamp isn't going to be cleared anytime soon. And so we need to teach people swamp craft. The government had said they would give £100 million to weight management programmes. They work. We know they work. They kick that into the long grass. So teach people swamp craft. Go look at the the most, uh, the least affluent, most effective people and teach them how to cook, give them free fruit and veg, all sorts of things you can do that. Proven, proven that it works. And at the same time, extend free school meals, hollow activity and food and a healthy start. Okay. And when the cost of living crisis comes down, that's when you move into taxation. And I would say just one person has, has said, and this comes to the culture of change, uh, someone said here, can you put the ultra-processed genie back in the bottle? We make a very passionate case in a chapter called The Power of Love that not only do we have to, but that you can, that you can change culture and that we've changed our food culture before and we can change it again. So I think there is uh, every chance we will look back on ultra-processed food in 30 years' time and think, my God, we went down that route. Now, the, the question then is, I said this to uh, in, in, a, in a talk in Derby the other day, and a GP in the audience put his hand up and said, uh, every day I spend my life prescribing antidepressants and now semaglutide, this appetite suppression drug, and sending my patients off to have their feet amputated for diabetes. We don't have 10 years. So that then is the question is, do you have time? Do you have time to make that shift? Yeah, I think it needs more than one. We need to address a few of these ex questions. We've addressed a few of them. Again, lots of comments on meat, as I expected. Um, most of them would seem to be very pro-meat, saying, you know, why are we or me um, promoting, you know, saying ultra-processed meat is bad, but ultra-processed plants uh, are not bad. Um, certainly, I wasn't saying that. Uh, I was just saying, if you had to compare the two, uh, they're both bad for your health, but um, the definitely the, the process, you know, one is better for the planet than the other one. That's about the only small difference. Yeah, you and the reason there was a question about why a campaign on meat mm. and not on ultra-processed food. And the answer to that is, I don't think there is a cultural love of ultra-processed food. It has just, it has come into our diet through price and marketing. And so I think the government can intervene on ultra-processed food in a way that we need to change the story about meat. So that's why the and campaign... Yeah, and if out. you took out ultra-processed or you taxed ultra-processed food or you took it out of the institutions, then actually people would naturally gravitate to more plants and less cheap yeah. meat, yes. that is, as we discussed. So I, th I do think there is a, a, a point... Uh, in that that the worst thing is is really cheap ultra processed meat you know that we have uh, that nobody's saying is healthy for you nobody's saying is good for the planet it's got nothing really to to recommend it and increasingly these plant alternatives are tasting better as well so and the next generation will get better um so that um and uh, i think do we see uh, uh, ultra processing other have you, when you spoke to companies do you think there is a way of make you know actually doing more research and working out what it is bad about the processing um at the moment we know it's 
artificial sweeteners. We know it's emulsifiers. We know it's um, uh, some of these gums, these glues, and some of the and the flavorings. Um, do you think in the future they will be able to create uh, an ultra processed food that is healthy for us? Here's my hypothesis, and then you can tell me yours. So, I think that. 70% of the problem with ultra processed food will just end up being high in fat, high in sugar, soft, soft and uh, calorie dense, low in water and low in insoluble fiber. Now, you might be able to, uh, to create an ultra processed food that wasn't, that wasn't that, but people won't eat as much of it. So I think that will be the problem. So we'll work out, okay, a lot of, a lot of it's like that, but hold on. That's the stuff that sells. I think then there'll be another 30%, which will turn out to be much more interesting and complicated, which will be the chemical complexity of, of the food we that's cooked from scratch, the way it reacts to the microbiome, and that data science will advance enough, like dealing with big data in the next 10 years that will begin to understand the causal mechanisms of, of stuff better. But I don't know, what, what do you think? Yeah, I think until they... S s but there's two problems. One is the gut health problem. And I think the other one is the overeating by 20% problem. And yes, you can show your food doesn't make people overeat by 20%, you know, in tests, maybe you get a different label on it. And you say, you know, this doesn't come with a, this is going to make you a beast label. It just says, uh, warning for your gut health, but not for your waistline. So I think we, you know, we desperately need regulation testing on these foods that are you know costing taxpayers fortunes and uh you know causing this country to go really down the tubes health-wise big time and i think we have to realize that in europe you know there are countries having only 10 percent of their calories as ultra processed foods so other countries manage to do it in their food system uh without collapsing and um, you know maybe not possible for us to go from you know, nearly 60% down to 10%, but we could certainly halve it uh, very easily and go back to levels that we were at, uh, you know, 10 or 20 years yeah. ago. I think that's a very interesting way of splitting it into foods that make you overeat and foods that mess up the way your hormones work, uh, you know, give you metabolic disorder. In the, in, as you'll know, in the States, there are now a huge number of people who are type 2 diabetes, the skinny fat, they call them, who have type 2 diabetes but aren't overweight. And funnily enough, we don't quite know why this is, but we think it may be because they don't get identified. Those people, their mortality risk is, is greater than people who are obese with, with type 2 diabetes. So that kind of thing of just messing up your hormones, inf inflammation and hormones, I think it's a very interesting distinction to make, those two things. A lot of questions about, again, about meat and, and a lot of, People still feel that, for example, teenagers, if they're vegan or vegetarian, can't get enough protein. And um, that's why they need meat. And uh, that's got to be a, a core part of the diet. I think there's lots of science to say that's not true, but it does depend on the, the alternative, the quality of the diet. You can certainly get enough protein from legumes and variety of vegetables. You, there's, it's well proven that you don't need to have meat as part of that diet unless you've got some dietary problems or 
or whatever. Do you and, and you had to be uh, you had to be a little bit careful about a couple of vitamins. I mean, you know, but but I think that going on the health argument either way for meat, it's certainly people have said said to us in the food strategy, oh, you need to say that meat is unhealthy because people care about health. And actually, as you say, yes, there's some evidence processed meat, particularly maybe if it's got nitrites in it. The hemiiron might, if you eat a lot of red meat, the heme might give you a, a higher incidence of colon cancer. But they're pretty small effects compared to eating other things. So I think, yeah, it's just if you, I'm not saying don't eat meat. What I'm saying is, eighty billion is too much. It's taking up too much land. Like, uh, and, and eating thirty percent less meat. If you eat meat every day of the week, that's two days fewer. If you eat it every meal, that's one meal less. So. You know, what I don't understand is why people get, well, I do understand it, but people get incredibly defensive about the fact that maybe on a global basis we're just eating a bit too much. I don't think there's any need to be defensive about that. Yeah, no, I agree. It's, it's not about, and it's not about making everybody vegan overnight, which a lot of people think, uh, you know, is the agenda here, which which it, it absolutely isn't. The, the other thing was the Eat Lancet. So one of the famous things with the Eat Lancet study, which was, which solved the equation I talked on earlier, which was biodiversity, carbon, and food production. They solved that with a very low meat diet. But I think what a lot of people didn't realize that that was just one solution. There are many different ways in which you can, and we solved it with a different solution, which had only 30% less meat by 2030, maybe a bit more by 2040, depending on what happens to the population. So, so I, think that, I think that that was that particular study, I think, spooked people because they assumed that people were saying it was the only the only solution rose is back in to discipline us yeah so anyway <laughs> we'll wrap up now but i think that the key message is that yeah there are lots of potential solutions but as an individual level the most important thing you can do for your health is to uh pick the right foods uh and understanding your food really is crucial and the second uh, thing is it's also the most your food choices the most important thing you as an individual can do for the planet and i think that that is something that message should go out there as we elevate the discussion about food and uh, and diet rosie gosh thank you i have to say that was the best hour i've ever heard a food discussion that was the best even better than manette and and george monbiot I mean, it was so streaks ahead. I can't even begin to go there. Um, you were both fantastic. And, and also you came up with really, really interesting and practical solutions. And I can, you know, one thing I can say is I wish every single MP and member of the House of Lords had been able to listen to that. And I might keep it in my back pocket and see who it can be shown to, because you really took us on a proper tour through the problems and also came up with a lot of the solutions. I think that I thought, Henry, when you said that, it's very difficult to culturally remove meat from our lives, but actually we don't have any cultural affection for ultra processed food. Actually, nobody does. It's just this weird thing that has floated in from left field. And in fact, you can start to isolate it. And all the work that both of you do is so invaluable. Um, Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I don't think there's any better way we could have kicked off this series of six ideas to how to change the world. You have certainly given us many more than six. And I'm kind of with Henry that, Tim, I think it's very, very hard to only come up with one. 
but you managed to do it. And I thank you very much. And I will be back again on the 29th of June to talk about the water crisis with Alok, Alok Shah and Tim Smedley. Please join us then. And in the meantime, thank you. Enjoy this nice sunshine evening, which I can still see outside the window uh, and take care. Bye bye. Thank you.